0: Our American Stories, and we love hearing stories from our own home state. We do something about this state, too, and there are not a lot of stories about Mississippi out there in the country, and we broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi, a small town about an hour south of Memphis, the home of William Faulkner, the home of Ole Miss, so many other great writers. John Grisham, Morgan Freeman lives nearby, and we are happy to call this place home, and Randall Haley has shared one of her stories with us before, and it was called Juking in the Delta with My Old Man, and it was beautiful. She's from the Delta, but lives in Oxford now, and while she loves her new home, she misses her old one. Here's Randall Haley
1: There are three things that Oxford did best. In 1995, a young woman full of ambition and determined to celebrate the food, music, and art of Oxford, Mississippi couldn't be deterred from the idea of a festival on the square. I knew it would work. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was young and naive, didn't know enough to know it might not work, or I'm bad about thinking I can make whatever happen. Once I decided, I'm like, yeah, we're going to make it happen. Robin Tannehill was hired in June of 1995 to be the director of the Oxford Tourism Council, which is now called Visit Oxford. Tannehill immediately began work on her first project. 22 years later, that project has become one of Oxford's most celebrated weekends, bringing over 60,000 tourists to the square. For a weekend that all started with the idea of a young, naive woman, it's safe to agree with Tannehill and say, Double Decker Arts Festival has become just as big as a home football game weekend. So, what is Double Decker to me? Well, I was born and raised in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Of course, I live and work in Oxford, and it's most certainly my second home. But there's just something about the Delta that makes a person proud to call it his or her own. My love for Oxford comes close to that of the Delta. But there are two distinctive lifestyles that, despite the proximity and distance, cannot compare. For a country girl like me, Oxford culture was more comparable to city life, even though Oxford is considered a small town in every sense of the word. I was so blinded by the rich culture in Oxford when I moved here that I thought, Oxford is huge. In reality, there's no more acreage in Oxford than there is in my hometown of Clarksdale. It felt so big because Oxford has about five times the amount of restaurants and places to shop, and the university of course, which has me praying for summer traffic on Jackson Avenue most of the time. But it was the ambiance that revolved around an artsy culture that caught my attention. It was one I could relate to. I was no stranger to the artsy type. My heart beats to a blues rhythm 99% of the time. What I wasn't accustomed to were buildings on almost every plot of land on the square, with no space between them. I was used to empty parking lots and grain bins, if anything. And after driving up the hill toward the square on Jefferson Avenue, thinking it would use every drop of gas in my gas tank to make it up the hill, I realized how much I really loved the flatlands. After all, the biggest hill I ever saw in the Delta was the man-made levee. However, despite all of its differences, found a piece of that culture I loved, a true Delta aura, at the Double Decker Arts Festival in Oxford, Mississippi. While roaming the square, I caught the scent. Lee Margaret Hamilton of Greenville, Mississippi, sat in her chair scanning card after card as the line grew outside of her booth. The crowd couldn't get enough of her so-delta candles. With scents such as blues, sweet tea, and cotton row, I could smell home within yards of the booth. When Hamilton began So Delta Candle Company in 2009, she wanted to produce a Mississippi manufactured product that would capture the Delta in all of its essence. The smell, the sight, the sound, and the culture. She used the purest soy wax she could find and voila. People from across seas, celebrities, everybody and their mama were ordering these original candles. Actress Laura Dern's assistant gave Hamilton a phone call one day and she said, We want to buy them for ourselves and we want to buy some to give as gifts. She bought some for actresses Mary Steenburgen and Reese Witherspoon and asked to have them sent to her by the next day. She wanted them in California in time to enjoy the sweet smells while getting dressed for the Oscars. Hamilton hurried to have them sent immediately and said, When Hollywood calls, you have to answer. Sending candles to Dern, Steenburgen, and Witherspoon was a memory Hamilton will forever hold on to, but their most rewarding sale to date was the shipment that made its way to Afghanistan. After an order was placed online, Hamilton read the zip code and found that an American soldier was ordering candles from her. He ordered Mississippi and Cotton Row, Hamilton said. I just kind of put everything into perspective and thought, gosh, this guy really misses home to be ordering candles that are indicative of his homeland.'" And that really touched me. What I'm doing, people really love and appreciate. They're so connected. That Saturday on the square, I felt I could relate to that man who missed home. Sure, Oxford is lovely and everything it has to offer, but that one scent makes you stop dead in your tracks to take another whiff. That one scent that reminds you of where you came from, who you are, and what you'll be. Puts you in a trance where all you can say is, So Delta.
0: and beautiful job as always and I think we'll be hearing more from Randall and we've got voices now coming from all over the country, from Boston from Southern California, Los Angeles and from little towns Uh, someone from Des Moines is about to start helping us with their state fair and WHO a big, big signal in the middle of our great country loves the show, we're hearing great things in Boston and if you've got a story, send it to us ouramericannetwork.org You hear how we do it. It's your voice. We don't change it. We don't mess with it. We just share it. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our newsletter. It's free, and we'll send you the best five stories, the very best five stories of the week in transcription form and audio. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Randall Haley's story, her Delta story, The Homesick Blues, We're back with our American stories. And now we bring you the story of the unlikely relationship between two of New York City's finest, a firefighter named Nils Jorgensen and the late billionaire David Koch, a leader of Koch Industries, which employs 67,000 Americans. Nils was off duty on 9-11 when the first plane struck the World Trade Center. He complied with a total recall order for all off-duty firemen to report to their firehouses. And that's where Nils picks up the story.
2: I started driving to my firehouse, and then all of a sudden on the radio I hear, second plane is struck. I could somewhat see on my drive the smoke and whatnot, and I'm flying over the Verrazano Bridge, and my wife calls me frantically, where are you, where are you? And I said, I'm on the bridge, I'm going in. And she says, no, you're not. Listen to what your dad, my dad would always tell me, if there's ever a recall, you follow it or you could end up dead and no one is looking for you. And for some unknown reason, there was no traffic. It was eerie. And I'm flying and I'm going, but wait a minute, I don't have my fire gear. What the hell am I going to do? She hung up the phone screaming at me and my wife doesn't curse. She said, those effing buildings are going to go down and you'll effing die. Go to your command where you're supposed to. And I heard my father in my ear, and he's just, my father doesn't say a lot, but when he says something, it's profound. And I remember him always saying, kid, never be a freelancer. You follow your orders, you follow your training. Something real bad goes down. And this was after the 93 bombing, because I was at that, and we used to always talk and say it's gonna happen again. And he said, you follow your orders, go to your firehouse, get your gear, and you get your further pending orders. I veered off the highway, went down into Brooklyn where I worked. I checked in, I was the first one. I called into command and they said, you get 12 guys, grab a city bus and get over there. And guys came streaming in and we were watching the TV and just as we run out the street to get the city bus to take us, we see the tower go down, the first one. And uh, I believe the second tower hit was the first one to collapse. And I, I, I dropped to my knees, and I started crying and praying. And the guys looked at me. I said, guys, now our our truck from our house was gone. It was at the scene. So we were in the empty house and, you know, convening and deploying from there. And I said, guys, 114 is dead. That's our truck. And they're, like, looking at me. I go, what are you talking about? I said, when I came in the door, I heard our boss, Dennis, on the radio, 114 truck with 1084 is our code of on scene. We're at Albany and West. Where do you need us? And the nickname of our truck is Tally Ho. And he said, Tally Ho responded to the command post, West in Albany, for further orders. That was the last I heard from my lieutenant. His rookie son, or as we call a probie, his probie son was assigned that day in another ladder company, and he was killed. And that lieutenant ended up saving our crew because as they were going into the building, he saw what he thought to be partial collapsing. And he told the guys, turn around, this building's coming down behind us. And as they turned around and ran, they dove under a truck, the building came down, the guys 40 feet, 50 feet behind them are under it and they're dead and they're in the pile. And my lieutenant who unfortunately did lose his son saved our crew unbeknownst to us, as that was going on, we got into the bus, and as we were coming over the Brooklyn Bridge to help, and we got into the city and started running toward it, the second building just came down. And I wasn't there in the building when it collapsed, and I would never claim to be. But I made my best effort to get there, and the crew of us that got there were horrified because we knew that our on-shift platoon, our guys that we loved and worked with, were probably underneath that pile. And by the grace of God, that lieutenant saved that shift of five guys plus himself. But unfortunately, the other ladder company 105, which I had actually was my first command in the city where my lieutenant's son was working, his son was killed. And the strange part about it was the senior man, the older firefighter working that day on that shift with his son was working with me on the day of 1993's bombing, and he was my senior man, looking over. <sighs> <I'm> sorry. <sighs> he was he was looking over my shoulder. And later on, <sighs> hours later after the evening of the first bombing in 93, he looked around, and he said, you know what, kid? He goes, these mutts didn't do it right. They blew it up in the middle. But if they did it in the corner by a column, they would have beat us today and the building would have dropped. And he said to me "But the next time they come back, they'll do it right. Don't don't kid yourself for a second. And that man, Hank Miller, he died. He died that day. He almost prophesied it. And then just and then we just we we regrouped and redeployed onto the main pile because there was. There was confirmed a couple people that were still alive and we were working on shuttling gear in and out and trying to just move debris and whatnot. And I was with an older guy, and we branched off maybe a hundred yards to another section, and we were just down in a hole underneath a bunch of steel. And all you could hear was sand dropping every once in a while, like as if it was rolling down a hill. And it was eerily quiet, and then he would just hear some hissing, and that was the gas lines that were ruptured. And he just said, kid, what do you hear? And I said, I hear the hissing, and I, I hear the debris. The, the, it was just everything was pulverized into gray sand. And he said, no, I know that, but what else do you hear? And I stopped for a second, and I said, I don't hear anything. He said, that's right, he says, because everyone's dead. We're wasting our time. He goes, no one's coming out of this, kid. They are all gone. He goes, look at the concrete, look at the steel, what happened to it. You think bodies are gonna survive through that? And he was right, he was right. Everybody was pulverized and everybody was just crushed and it was it was just horrible. And we stayed till about four o'clock that following morning. We couldn't breathe, we couldn't, we just, we, we were caked and filled with dust in our throats, and our eyes couldn't see at points in time and the lieutenant just decided he says guys we need to regroup We've got to try to get back to our firehouse clean up get some supplies and get right back here in the morning so we hopped on a city bus and uh, we walked down to the battery tunnel and they told us there'd be buses hopefully to get us back over to brooklyn and we returned to brooklyn and the guy couldn't for some reason i can't remember why he couldn't go up the main street where we were on so he dropped us off so we went we walked up the hill and we were all having a hard time breathing and it felt like we swallowed a box full of razor blades. and I, I was really having trouble walking up the hill and I, I was it was the worst sore throat you've ever had but then down from your roof of your mouth to the insides of your stomach and I remember one of the older guys with us he said you know what guys were all dead I said, no, no, Dan, we made it. He goes, no, you don't understand. He goes, this crap we breathed in, we're all dead men. And out of the 20 guys that were there that day from our crew, I think, I think eight of us have cancer. And some, a few of the guys, I've been blessed with only one, but a few of the guys have had three different cancers. And by the grace of God, those particular guys are alive. One of my other dear friends came down with three different cancers, and he's been dead now for almost two years. And that guy was right. He he wasn't right about all of us, but there's a lot of us that, that died after the fact, from those hours, the first day, second day, 50th day, 80th day of being down there. And we went back to the firehouse, and we cleaned off, and we just got the caked dust out of our, trying out of our throats, out of our eyes. We, we, we We got some fresh clothes, but the dirty, toxic clothes that we were wearing, we didn't throw them out. We threw them in the wash. We threw them in the firehouse laundry. We threw them in our locker where they sat for a couple weeks until we got a chance to do laundry. And then, you know, you'd have your gear in the subsequent days, and your fire gear was filthy and caked with this toxic crap, and it's in the back of your car. And then if you're lucky enough to get a day off or half a day off, You try to clean the car out and then you throw your baby seat in the back, not knowing that a couple of years later they're going to say, oh, this stuff was really, really bad and toxic. And now you're going, oh, my God, my kids breathe this crap, too.
0: And you've been listening to 9-11 firefighter Nils Jorgensen. More of Nils' remarkable story here on Our American Stories.
3: Hey all, this is Joey Cortez, a producer of Our American Stories. As always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the show. It's you, our listeners, that make this show possible. From the donations to the stories, without you, we wouldn't be here today. And we would love your continued support. If you feel so inclined, give us a tax-deductible donation at ouramericannetwork.org. And while you're there, submit your story too. With your help, we can bring you the very best stories out there. More of our American stories after the break.
0: And we continue with our American stories and firefighter Nils Jorgensen's story. Nils's colleague predicted that they would get sick from the work that they did on 9-11 and in the aftermath. And tragically, he was right.
2: Long story short, they found it out, they diagnosed the the leukemia. The way they explained it to me was it's different than an organ cancer. It's not like a uh, stage one, two, three or four of, you know, colon or liver. Leukemia is like a car driving on a road, as they explained. You get to a cliff, the wheels go off, you're dead. I said, all right, doc, where am I? He goes, well, your your front wheels are off the cliff. You probably had about another three or four days to live. We're gonna try to intervene with the spleen, get all the swelling down. They drilled into my hip. They found out exactly what cancer it was. And it's the rarest leukemia you can have. There's 49 different ones. There's only 500 cases in all of North America a year. And I was the seventh 9-11 rescuer in six months to come down with it. And a couple of the guys had already died. And my cancer doctor said to me, he goes, it's statistically impossible that that many of you have this rare of a leukemia. By the grace of God, I was given very, very high doses of chemotherapy. It's, I believe, I'm given it in a layman's perspective, but it was, the drug is called Cladribine. When they give you seven days of non-stop chemotherapy in these massive bags, IV bags, and it's, from what I was told by my doctor, it's almost like the equivalent of two years of chemo jammed into a week. Um, burns out your bone marrow entirely in the hopes that your own seedling marrow will regenerate. And my angel on earth, and I haven't got a chance to recapture with him, and I regret this, and shame on me for not I had a male nurse named Mike Nunez, and Mike Nunez was my angel on earth. And there was many other nurses, but Mike was my main guy. And he explained to me, he said, listen, he goes, I'm gonna come in, I have to wear a hazmat suit. We're gonna start you up on this. I go, whoa, Mike, a hazmat suit? He goes, listen, he goes, you'll kind of get this because you're a fireman. He goes, this stuff exposed to air is so caustic that it'll burn through plastic. He said, but in your vein and in your body, it's going to do its job, it'll burn. You're gonna feel like you're burning your entire body, but that means the drug is working. So I said, well, Mike, I'm forget it, I don't want it. He goes, then you're gonna die. And I got my three young kids at the time, I mean, this is eight years ago, so I got 14, 11, and nine. And I'm like, whoa, I gotta do this, man. And it was like I was flashing back to my life. My dad was in the fight of his life in 1978 when I was 10 years old. Was basically told he had an end stage, not Hodgkin's lymphoma, but if he was willing to be a test pilot for a a new drug at the time, they would try it on him in the hopes that it would work. And if it didn't, he would die. And he, believe it or not, is still here, he's 80. And I said to my father, and I called him up, <laughs> and my father is just, just one of the, the greatest guys that's walked this earth. He used to get up at four in the morning on a Thursday, and my mom would drop him down to a train, which from Staten Island he'd take to a ferry and then a subway to downtown Brooklyn because he was assigned to a desk job when he got cancer. And I'm, I'm sorry to go on a tangent, but something I just have to express. And this guy would get up at 4 in the morning on Thursday, and Thursday was his treatment day, and he'd go to work. And then at noon, instead of going to lunch, he'd get back on the subway to the ferry, to the train, and my mom would pick him up and bring him to the cancer center. And they'd juice him up with some heavy nuke shit, probably similar to what I got. But back in 78, it was cutting edge. He was a test pilot for a lot of people. And he'd get home, and within two hours, he'd be vomiting everywhere and, and diarrhea and... and and as a 10-year-old, it was heartbreaking. Because <sighs> I'd go in and I'd wipe the vomit off his mouth, but he couldn't drink because it would just projectile right out. So I'd just try to keep him comfortable, and I'd wipe his mouth and clean him and care for him. And the next day, he'd be sick as can be. But then it was weird. After midnight on Friday, it would start to subside. And Saturday morning... He'd put on a robe and he'd come down and he'd try to sit in a chair and he'd have some orange juice and some water and start to rehydrate. And then Sunday, he'd ask my mom to make him eggs and toast and black coffee. And on Monday, he'd get back on the train and the ferry and the subway and he'd repeat that process two weeks later and he did that for four years. And this guy is still in remission till his day is 80 years old. So I called him up the night before my treatment start. Mike said to me, you're gonna feel like you're burning and that's the minute it starts. And I said, dad, how'd you do it? He said, kid, keep low, which means stay below the fire. He goes, keep low and you'll do it. And that was it. He said, I love you and he hung up the phone. Mike came in, Mike Nunez, the nurse, came in and when he started the IV, it jumped out of the line and it splashed and he's got a hazmat suit and I'm laying there and all of a sudden, the IV tube starts smoking and going on fire and I'm like, Mike, Mike, what the frig? You're not putting that in me. He goes, Nels, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He goes, I got to start it all over. He goes, you're going to be okay, but you have to take this or you're going to die. And I thought about my old man, the conversation we just had, and I thought about those three little kids who came in a little while before that, my wife. I said, all right, Mike, hit me, let's do this. And about a second after he he hooked me into the vein with the IV, I started feeling this burning going up my arm. And then it was up my shoulder, and then it was in my head, and then it was within 20 seconds, it was flushed through my whole body. And i have been burned before. i I've been, I've been caught. I've ended up in the burn center, and it's the worst feeling in the world when you're trapped. And that's how I felt. But it was from the inside out and it was, it was so painful. But I wouldn't take a pain med because I have a brother with, with prescription med problems and what have you and I didn't wanna go that way. I'm thinking maybe it's in the genes, I don't know. And I laid there for the first six days and I felt like I was burning to death from the inside out of my body and I cried and I prayed and I wanted to die. And I had a vision of my mother-in-law my beloved mother in law died six months before I was sick. This woman went to church every day. Beautiful Irish woman. And she called me her boyfriend because we'd sit and talk, because I, I understood her. I got her. It's the Irish thing. We like to talk. And she came to me in a vision, and I was praying to die. And unbeknownst to me, I thought it was hallucinations. There was this raging thunderstorm going on, but it was really a raging thunderstorm. And she came to me, and I had blips of all these people I loved who had died. But then all of a sudden, she's facing me, and she's laughing. And she says, hi, my boyfriend. And we called her Nan, and I said, "Nan, I want to come home. Please take me with you. I can't do this anymore. I got I to gotta go. I'm ready. And she smiled, and she goes, no, not yet, my boyfriend. She goes, you're going to be all right. It's going to hurt, but you'll be okay. I'll see you later. And I'm, I'm grabbing for her, and she goes... I had a doctor who was atheist, and I told her the story, and she goes, oh, you're seeing things? I said, well, I don't know, but I, I conveyed it to her, and I'm not gonna lie to you, the chemo messed my mind up a little bit too, it was brutal. She sends a shrink in to talk to me, and he's a rabbi, he's a Jewish, Jewish doctor. And he starts laughing, and he goes, I believe you. You're fine. What else do you wanna talk about? I said, what do you mean? He says, pay me for an hour. I said, you wanna watch the Yankees? We watched the Yankee game. So for seven days, stuff burned through my body, but it worked, and I'm here. And it was hard going through it, and it was even harder on my wife and my kids, but I'm here, man, and I'm lucky.
0: And you're listening to Nils Jorgensen. I'm here, man, and I'm lucky. I cried and I prayed and I wanted to die. And then he had these visions, and there was that sweet, beautiful old Irish lady praying for him, loving on him. And when we come back, more of Nils Jorgensen's story here on Our American Stories. with Our American Stories and firefighter Nils Jorgensen's story, Nils contracted the rarest form of leukemia from his work on 9-11 and its aftermath. Thankfully, the cancer's in remission and Nils was more than thankful. He noticed that Coke Industries leader David Koch had given hundreds of millions of dollars to cancer research and to New York City hospitals. And he partially credits David for his being alive. And so Nils, well, He wanted to show his gratitude.
2: You know what the problem is today in the world? No one is grateful anymore. There is no gratefulness, it's just just gone. And that was the main emphasis of my letter. But all I wanted to do with that letter was just say, hey, sir, thank you. This is somebody you've helped. You have no idea who I am, no idea what my life's about, but I want you to know you've blessed my life. And that was the only reason I did it. I was sitting there one day, and I was, I was just feeling thankful for everything. And I saw them hammering him on TV over some political nonsense. And I didn't agree with everything the man said or did or stood for, but they were blistering this guy over something so minute. And it upset me so much. And I'm like, don't they realize the good that this man has done? And, and, I, and I just said, you know what? I want him to know that there's people out there that do appreciate it. And that was the main reason why I sat down at that very moment in, in my best grammar school penmanship because I, I'm not a computer guy and I'm technologically horrible and I probably would have sent an email to, I don't know, Australia somehow or whatever. It wouldn't have gotten there. So I said, let me write an old school letter and let me look up the address for where they're headquartered and let me send it in the hopes that he gets it. And a couple weeks later, I was like, oh, I guess maybe they didn't get it, and it's okay. I, mean, I didn't want anything. I wanted nothing from him. I wanted to just say thank you. <laughs> and I got a call, you know, from Christine Nichols, from, you know, I guess it's his public relations folks, and I was blown away. And I was like, wow, you know what? This man knows that I'm grateful, and that meant everything. Mr. Koch invited me to the dedication of his new cancer wing at Sloan Kettering. And I'm sitting there, and Mr. Koch came up with his wife, and he's just such a lovely guy. And he says, Nelson, I'm so glad you made it here today. And and I said, you know, Mr. Koch, I didn't expect a free lunch or anything like that. And I says, but I just wanted to get a chance to shake your hand and say thank you. I said, you know this very well as a fellow survivor. If it wasn't for research and it wasn't for people devoting their life to the cause of cancer, we wouldn't be here. And he smiled and he says, You're so right. And he just said, Thanks for the acknowledgement. And I says, Mr. Coke, thank you, sir. It's my honor. And we parted ways. And, you know, I said, Oh, hopefully I'll see you when the building's completed if we, if we get around to it. And that was my last interaction with him, but it was wonderful. It was so funny. I took my kids to the museum in New York a couple of weeks ago. And I'm walking in the David Koch wing, and I'm going, "Oh my God, this guy! This guy helped everybody, you know." And, and then we walk somewhere else. I forgot where we were in the city. And I, oh, we walk past the Metropolitan Opera to get to our car, and I look up, and there's his wing there. And I'm saying, "Wow, this guy did a lot of good for this city," and uh, yeah, and just a gentleman, just a, just a, he seemed to me a humble, unassuming gentleman. And I walked away going, "Wow, I can't believe this guy's like this huge." business titan. It just, he just didn't come off that way. You know, I was expecting this swaggering, almost John Wayne guy with a, with a chip and maybe, you know, a, a second to put out his hand and say, yeah, how you doing? And keep on going. But he stood there for a good few minutes and just chatted, and it was, it was really nice. It was a great memory I have. Really great memory of him. And I'm sure some of my union brethren, you know, he's big business, and we're not, and blah, blah. Hey, listen, I don't know the last pro-union guy who's dedicated hundreds of millions of dollars to cancer research or other philanthropic causes that help people. So I tell him, go stick it. See, that's the problem in, in, you know, everyone gets a trophy now, is if your trophy's bigger or you have more trophies, people are upset. But it's like, wait a minute, back when I was a kid, you know, you ought to work for stuff. You know, I studied for four years to become a fire lieutenant to get a $20,000 a year raise. And I say that to my son. My son's 19, and he's actually training to be a pilot, and he's, he's not sure. He's in a limbo. He doesn't know what to do. And I said, son, let me explain something to you. I said, you're in America. I said, no one can tell you no, unless, God forbid, you have a huge disability or whatnot. And even then, you could probably still do it. And I said, "Don't tell your mother we're talking like this, because my wife has a no curse policy. So I have to be really guarded. She's tough, and I'm very scared of her. She's five foot two, and she's she's the drill sergeant around here, but the best." I said, "Son, no one owes you sh, and no one owed me sh." And I said, "Guess what I did last year? I said I paid off my house after 25 years. It's paid off. Not a big house, just a ranch, not special, but it's paid off." I said I bought it when I was 24 years old. I got the, the quickest down payment I could scrape together and my father said "At the minute you can buy a house, you buy a house. And I did and there was many, many months. Once my wife stopped working and the baby started coming well, I went, dad, this is a mistake. He said, kid, just keep as you're going, don't worry about it, it'll be paid off. And I said that to my son. I said, guess what? You'll do the same thing. I said, but no one's going to give it to you. I so said, I'll help you along if I can. You know, I pay for his flying lessons because it's not cheap. And, and I said, but I want you to put it to good use. And he's like, Dad, I will. I will. And that's the problem. Everybody feels like someone owes them something. No one owes me nothing. And I say to people, they rip me all my pension, my pension. And I say, listen, I said, I know pensions are a tricky subject. I said, but I did a lot of dangerous, crazy, dirty shit for my pension. And I said... If it's so much money, why am I still out there working with, I don't have active cancer, thank God, but you know it's in me or whatever. I said, why would I be out there working as a stagehand if I made so much money? I said, so thank you. Yeah, I'm grateful for my pension, but I earned every penny of it. And And I said, the beautiful thing is everything I owned, I worked for. And that is so hard to instill in people. And that's why, you know, Mr. Koch and his brother were so wildly successful, because somebody instilled that, the lack of fathers. And I understand sometimes divorce or sometimes death, it happens. But to be brought into the world and from day one never have someone looking after you, that's heartbreaking. And unfortunately, it's omnipresent in today's society. And I don't care what race. It's everywhere. Unfortunately... January of 2012, my career was ended. I was retired off the department medically uh, because with with certain cancers, you're not allowed to return to fire duty. And that to me, it sounds pathetic, but that was probably the worst day of my life. One of them because I, I lost what I did. I lost my priesthood. I lost being a fireman and helping people. And one of the weirdest things that totally set me straight after I got cancer, I was really down about losing the job. And my wife said to me, what's wrong with you? I said, I, I can't handle not being a fireman. And she goes, listen to me. She goes, you got a second chance at life. You got these kids, you got me. She goes, you're gonna have to get past it. And one night I'm at dinner and I'm cleaning a plate and my kids are still sitting there. And my daughter goes, You know what one of the best things about daddy getting cancer was and my son goes yeah he's home with us for dinner all the time i washed off the plate and i put it in the dishwasher and i walked out and i cried but it's okay i'm alive and i'm watching my children grow thank god my uh, oldest daughter emily who's 22 actually was inspired by my nursing care in methodist hospital in brooklyn new york I spent a month, um, she was inspired to become a nurse and she's starting her nursing career next week. Just been hired as an emergency room nurse and I'm so very proud of her and hopefully that's the silver lining of cancer. Someone now is going out to the world to help and make a difference.
0: And what a story, what a storyteller. And that's Nils Jorgensen's story. And what gratitude you hear in his voice, what insight, what wisdom. You've met a family. Let's face it, you met his dad. You met his wife. I'm afraid of her, too. And I think we're smart. We marry someone we're a little bit afraid of. And we met his kids. What smart kids, right? Something good did come of that cancer. He got to eat with his kids every day. And he's so right. No one owes you nothing. I can't say the other word. The FCC prohibits us. But in Brooklyn, well, it's not really a curse word there. It's just another word. And I know because I spent a lot of time in that part of the country. And his affection for David Koch, my goodness, a fireman and a billionaire. And they can just treat each other as fellow men, not vilifying each other, just trying to meet where humanity meets. And my goodness, what humanity in this story. And we'd love yours. You know, in the end, cancer takes so much. But there's opportunity and there are cracks of light from it, too. And your stories are always welcome here in Our American Stories, especially well, the toughest battles in our life We learn a lot about our family, ourselves, our God And my goodness, he learned about all three And he's still out there serving You know, he said he lost his priesthood He lost being a fireman He lost being able to help people Well, that's not true And he's out there still helping people He's just got a different color A different uniform But service is in the guy's heart In the end, well, some people go into business and they serve and then they take the fruits of that work, and they give back. And all of these choices are good ones. Fireman, businessman, teacher, coach, starting a business. That's what we do here in Our American Stories. We don't pit people against one another. We celebrate all of it. Every hamlet in this country, small to big. And again, we love that you're listening and supporting our, our show. And send your stories to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Nils Jorgensen's story here is Our American Stories. You're listening to Bono introducing The Streets With No Name, and he's been doing this a lot in his life now, singing his favorite gospel song openly and with passion. We've done a lot of stories of the song here on this show. This is the first time we're spending an hour, and it's not just the story of a song, it's the story of a man, John Newton's story, the writer of Amazing Grace. And John Newton grew up in the 18th century under very difficult conditions, his father was a seaman out in the sea making his living rough, rough times, rough, rough life. And to tell the story of John Newton in his early life and the seminal experience in his life, which was getting drafted at a very young age to go off and fight on a military warship. Imagine this, the 18th century, a young man just, well, you don't exactly volunteer for these positions back then. Here's Brian Edwards, author of Through Many Dangers, the story of John Newton. He gave a lecture telling this mesmerizing story. It started
3: with this seminal moment in young John Newton's life. 1744, the French fleet was becoming increasingly aggressive in the Channel, and King George II grew alarmed. The British Navy was always short of sailors. After all, who, in his right mind, would volunteer to be treated like an animal and suffer the butchery of 18th century naval warfare for just 24 shillings a month. That's pound 20 in modern money, especially when you could earn at least twice that amount if you were in the merchant service. And the government's answer to the shortage of recruitment was the infamous press gang. As part of the war effort on Saturday the 25th of February 1744, a day of strong gales with snow, First Lieutenant Thomas Ruffin delivered to Captain Carteret of HMS Harwich anchored just off Sheerness in Kent eight impressed men, one of whom was John Newton. A merchant sailor was always a prime target of the press gangs and his bandy legs, his bawdy language and his rolling gait was a give- giveaway on the waterfront at Chatham. His name was duly entered into the muster roll early in March. HMS Harridge was a fourth-rate man of war, 976 tonnes, 50 guns, a length of 140 feet and a crew of 300. For a month, John suffered cruelly as new crew members were literally beaten into submission. Admiral Vernon, one of the more humane admirals of his time, commented, I quote, Our fleets are defrauded by injustice, marred by violence, and maintained by cruelty. Food was almost inedible, water foul, discipline harsh, escape virtually impossible. And yet because his father was a merchant sea captain, and Newton himself had already been to sea with his father, he was soon promoted as midshipman.
0: Newton had a rough start, but he didn't give up. Even amidst his forced service, he did not lose hope. Specifically with the love of his life, Polly, he made sure to write her as often as he could.
3: On the 24th of January, 1745, John, just off a four-hour watch and at one o'clock in the morning, found a space somewhere on the cramped crew quarters to write a letter. He began, Dear Polly, This is the first letter we have from Newton's pen and it's a warm, flowing, passionate, 18th century love letter which closed, I am your most faithful, devoted admirer, Newton. And it ended with a wonderful flourish of squiggles. John was turned 19 and far removed from his mother's Christian faith. Mary Catlett, whom he nicknamed Polly, was just 16, two days before the letter was written.
0: John was raised with a strong Christian faith, but the life of a seaman didn't afford him the best environment to grow into a godly man. All of his early Christian influence came from his mom.
3: John was born on the 24th of July, 1725, at a little village called Wapping, just a mile downriver from the Tower of London. His mother, Elizabeth, was married to a merchant captain living in Red Lion Street. She was a sincere Christian and a member of the independent chapel of Dr Jennings. John was brought up, therefore, on Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts. Sadly, his mother died just before John's seventh birthday, and by the age of 11, he was at sea with his father. Two years of inferior schooling was all that he ever had. Dr. Johnson, the great uh, lexicographer, uh, said of Wapping that one day one had only to visit the place, quote, to see such modes of life that one could scarcely imagine. Well, before he was the age of 11, John had seen all those modes of life. He could walk down the end of his street and at execution dock, as it was known, he could watch mutineers and pirates hanging in chains until three tides had washed over them.
0: He saw at a young age things most adults could not handle, but he maintained a soft side, and especially for the woman he gave his heart to. In
3: 1742, John's father had arranged for him to take a job in Jamaica, and with time to kill beforehand, he visited the family of Mr. and Mrs. Catlett in Chatham, uh, in whose home Elizabeth Newton had died. They had six children, and Mary, the eldest girl, was almost 14 years when he first met her. As soon as John saw her, he fell madly in love with his Polly, a love that he claimed exceeded all that the Romantics ever thought of, and it remained true and steadfast and unwavering until Mary's death almost 50 years later.
0: And when we come back, more on the life of John Newton author, writer of Amazing Grace, and will capture and chronicle how that song crossed an ocean and became the most played, sung, and known gospel song in America, and of course, the world. This is Our American Stories. stories, and we continue with the story of a song, and of course the story of a man, the song Amazing Grace, the man John Newton who wrote it. Newton's life did not fly into a happily ever after parade of events. Indeed, all the evil that he experienced
3: ultimately became entrenched in his heart. But from now on, his life became a tangled web of romance, impetuous action and unbelief. John missed his boat to Jamaica, angered his father, visited Chatham as often as he could, overstayed his welcome, had no career to offer Mary or impress her parents. And finally, for his stupidity, he was himself impressed into His Majesty's Navy. When he wrote that passionate love letter in January 1745, John Newton had been converted to a free-thinking deist. That is, if there is a God, and we cannot know if there is, he's unconcerned, unconnected with this world. And therefore, from now on, morality was for John Newton to decide. He would plan his own life. The Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts were things of the past. John Newton became an evangelist for unbelief. Years later, he wrote in his diary on the 21st of March, 1757, I quote, I was at that time a sinner beyond the common measure of men, having fallen from a pretty close outward profession of the gospel into the blackest apostasy, so that at the age of 22, or rather much sooner, I not only took counsel with the ungodly and walked in the way of sinners, but I was set in the seat of the scorner. I had lived for about four years, not a denier only, but a despiser of the gospel. Venting the most outrageous blasphemies in all companies and upon all occasions, speaking of redemption, that amazing display of divine love, wisdom and power as an unholy, insignificant thing. And the person of my ever blessed and gracious redeemer as an imposter in all this time. I believe I never was in the company of any person that made the least pretense of a religious life, but I either endeavoured to laugh him out of it or, if that failed, scorned him in my heart. Never opened or spoke of the scriptures, but in order to introduce a profane jest upon them. Never spent half an hour with anyone with freedom, but I tempted him to sin. For my practice was as vile and abominable as my principles' so that I not only, as many others, indulge youthful sallies, as they are called by some, but lived in the habitual practice of every vice in which my age and circumstances were capable, theft and drunkenness only accepted. And in all these, I was a ringleader and a seducer of others.
0: This was a man who had come to hate God and all those that followed him. The one thing that his heart had a space for that he longed for, besides his evil ways, was his Mary, and he tried to reach her, but to no avail.
3: The thought of five years' separation from Mary was too much for John, and shortly after that love letter was written, John Newton deserted his ship. He was recaptured by dragoons, and Captain Carter had ordered what was known then as a red-checked shirt on the grating. 25 to 30 lashes across his bare back, after which he was carried below where his wounds were cauterised with vinegar, neat spirit, salt water or hot tar. And for days he was in a delirium. In May 1745, the fleet was anchored at Madeira and Newton managed to get himself exchanged for a seaman from a small merchant ship called the Pegasus. And this was possibly his introduction to slavery. The Pegasus was outward bound for Sierra Leone and the adjacent parts of the West African coast. If the Pegasus was a slave trader, her cargo was composed of an uninteresting assortment of lead, copper kettles, brass pans, ladles, basins, boilers, guns, gunpowder, knives and other miscellaneous items. And then, darkly stored away in her hold was a grisly array of chains, shackles, neck collars, leg and handcuffs and thumbscrews. Part of her cargo was the money with which to purchase slaves from the local traders on the West African coast, and the other part was the means by which the slaves were kept in order during the fearful second leg of the trade mission from Africa to the West Indies or the Americas, a journey often exceeding seven weeks. Having offloaded the slaves... The ship would then take on sugar, ginger, rum, pearls, cotton, and all the other commodities eagerly awaited by the British consumers. And it would return home across the final leg of the Atlantic Ocean. It's what became known as the triangular trade.
0: And thus began John Newton's deep work and entanglement with his darkest, darkest of professions, the slave trade itself.
3: John Newton was to become very familiar with this triangular tra- trade, which would generally take somewhere between 12 and 14 months to complete. It was considered at the time, I quote, a genteel occupation. He might have done well, but he worked for an unscrupulous trader and he became a virtual slave himself and the pity of slaves. In fact, he sank sl- so low that he dabbled in animism, at one time even worshipped the moon and was in the parlance of the time a white man become black. He lived and believed like the natives. In February 1747, by a quite remarkable coincidence, he found himself on board a merchant ship, the Greyhound, bound for England. Only his love for Mary and a blatant lie from the ship's captain actually made him head for home. He soon angered the captain by his foul language and bawdy songs, which often ridiculed both the ship and the captain without mentioning either of them by name. But, of course, by the same token, he was very popular with the crew. Halfway across the Atlantic, disaster hit the little ship. On the 10th of March, 1748, a fierce storm shattered the mast and rigging and the little ship was only kept afloat by her cargo of timber and beeswax. Newton joked that it would be something to laugh over a jug of beer when they arrived at port, to which a sailor on board responded, oh, no, no, it's too late now. And that, for some reason, went through Newton like a knife. For the first time since a childhood, Newton found himself praying lashed to the wheel or working the pumps, gave him time to think. Involuntarily, he repeated the words that he had learned from his mother, Proverbs 1, all the way through 31, and his memory seemed aided as he muttered above the wind and the torn canvas these condemning words. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man has regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they shall call me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Finally, after days of anguish and torture of mind, hope and peace flooded in as he put his wavering trust in Christ alone. He later wrote, on that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. The Greyhound, broken and barely afloat, arrived off Ireland in Loch Swilly, appropriately on Good Friday, the 8th of April, 1748.
0: John Newton's hard heart had been beaten soft, but he had nothing. In his old ways, well, they began calling to him.
3: No money, and with not enough gall to borrow from Polly's father, John set out on what he called his long, lonely walk back to Liverpool. He couldn't afford a coach. He walked every one of the 250 miles of the journey. He signed on as first mate on a slave ship, the Brownlow, and he backslid to the point of becoming almost as bad as before. A near fatal fever brought him to his senses and in his delirium and just out of it, he gave his life wholly to Christ.
0: And when we come back, more of the story of Amazing Grace. It's John Newton's story. Of course, it's the story of the song. And of course, it's the story of God's influence himself on a man who needed saving and needed grace. The story of Amazing Grace, the story of John Newton, here on our American Stories. in stories and we continue with the story of john newton and the story of a song amazing grace and we're listening by the way to brian edwards the author of through many dangers the story of john newton god had brought newton to his breaking point yet again and finally his life began to fall in place but he had not yet realized the evils of the slave trade.
3: On the 1st of February, back home, 1750, John married Mary at St. Margaret's Parish Church in Rochester, Kent. He had been offered a ship of his own. Now he had something to offer her, and of course, in 18th century style, her father as well. Six months later, in command of his own ship, the Duke of a 100 tons and a crew of almost 30, including the captain and mate, he set out on his first journey as a slave ship captain. And for this genteel occupation, he sought the prayers of Christian people before he left. Now, his voyages were always fraught with danger. In the first place... The captain always had, uh, by definition, an unruly crew. Sometimes he recorded in his log that he had to pin some of them to the deck in irons in order to bring them to heel. And then there was always the problem of the slaves looking for an opportunity to escape with 100, 150 or more below decks packed in uh, like books on a shelf. If they did manage to break free, and there are many records where they did on ships, they would massacre understandingly the entire crew before they themselves uh, tried to bring the ship back home. And then with an unruly crew and the slaves always looking for an opportunity for escape, there was disease and fever. Newton later worked out that something like one out of five sailors never returned home, which compared roughly to the figure of one of all four slaves who died in transit. And when you did land on the African coast or the West Indies, intrigue and treachery by black and white traders alike was rife. Newton said there was only one person on the African coast he ever trusted. Privateers and pirates ruled the seas. Many of the ships to and froing in an earlier century between the new new lands of America and uh, the home country disappeared without trace because the Barbary pirates from North Africa that were also patrolling the seas made sure that the economy of the North African coast depended upon white slaves, a fact that is not often brought to notice.
0: There was bad weather too and not very good navigation tools and rats ate at the sails and the feet of slaves and sailors alike. This was not a trip. He took only once.
3: He made three journeys in this command position, but he was increasingly uncomfortable with his way of life, which he said felt more like a turnkey or jailer, and it was. And, of course, he hated his separation from Mary, but he had no other career. He was a sailor. He knew nothing else. In November 1754, he was waiting for the fourth command in charge of a brand new ship that was being built for him. He was, in fact, a most successful uh, slave trader, and on his his third and what proved to be his last voyage, he lost not one member of the crew and not one slave in his journeying, which is unique in the annals of the early slave traders. But while he was waiting for this in Liverpool, he suddenly experienced a seizure, which passed him out for just a few minutes. He recovered. He never experienced it again, but it ended his sailing career. So from August 1755, he was a customs officer at Liverpool. He was actually known as a tide surveyor. His job was to be rowed out by a party of men that he had under his command to every incoming ship and search them for contraband, uh, which, of course, he was very able to do, being an experienced sea captain himself. He knew where you would hide something on board.
0: He changed careers again and began his adjustment to land life in Liverpool.
3: Liverpool was a very hard city, hard and godless. But it was while he was here that he began writing sermons and felt called to the ministry and was invited to preach in one or two churches. He nearly entered the independent ministry and there were times when he seriously considered becoming an evangelist for John Wesley and John Wesley would like him to have considered becoming his uh, second in command to take over leadership when he himself died. But as it happened, and if I may cut the story shorter, on the 17th of June 1764 he was ordained into the Church of England and settled at Oney in Buckinghamshire as curate in charge of St Peter's and St Paul's. And for 16 years he was a patient, hard-working, caring country parson, often we are told wearing his old sea captain's jacket as he visited his people. Not very clerical, but that was Newton.
0: What was his ministry like as a pastor?
3: He wasn't apparently a great orator. Richard Cecil, his first biographer, said, I quote, his utterance was far from clear and his attitudes ungraceful. But he was a warm preacher and he had a consistent life to back it up. He once wrote, I measure ministers by square measure. I have no idea of the size of the table if you only tell me how long it is, but if you tell me how wide it is, I can tell you all its dimensions. So when you tell me what a man is in the pulpit, I want to know what he is like out of the pulpit before I shall know his size. His aim, he once said, was not to acquire the character of a ready speaker, but to win souls to Christ. He claimed he only preached longer than an hour when he had very little to say.
0: Newton was a humble man, a self-taught man, but then came one of the more important moments in his life. He sat down and he wrote the book about his own life story, and it caused quite a sensation.
3: The first year at Olney saw the publication 1764 of His Story, An Authentic Narrative. It was remarkably successful, translated into many languages as well. It was the story of his life up to that point, that year, 1764. Students, politicians, even an admiral made the day's journey from London to Oney to see this man once beaten on deck for deserting his ship.
0: What an incredible testimony of a changed life. Newton continued his testimony by writing hymns but he did this in a very creative and purposeful way.
3: Now for years, John composed a short aid memoir for his congregation. It was a gift he employed so badly when he was at sea and was now turning to the service of the master. It could take him up to two days to compose a hymn, but when it was completed, it was actually the outline of his sermon. He'd learned it because as he walked down the streets, he heard the women at their bobbins, their bobbin tells, reciting little ditties. It's where all the village gossip went the rounds, actually. And they would cite a ditty to keep them in a rhythm of their their lace bobbins. And he realised that they had a remarkable memory of remembering verses. So he thought, well, why don't I give them something worthwhile remembering? And he would give an outline of his sermon in the form of a hymn. They forgot the sermon, they learned the hymn they knew what the sermon was all about eventually he wrote a new hymn for his prayer meeting each week and frequently expounded it to the congregation before they were permitted to permitted to sing it for the first time he began in earnest at the close of 1772 and within six years he had written and expounded over 300 hymns now many of his hymns were topical and that's why they haven't come down to us. They reflected life at Oni: winter, spring, summer, harvest, a violent storm, a sharp frost, the earthquake of 1775, an eclipse of the moon on the 30th of July, 1776, the great fire at Oni the year later, 1777, and even the visit of a lion to the town. They all provided local themes for hymns that would fix people's minds on much more important issues. Some of the hymns, of course, have become part of our national heritage. He was
0: a godly man, John Newton, but practical too. His understanding of the human heart, his experience of it, equipped him to lead and teach God's word in a way that made sense for the everyday life. And of course, his most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace, well, that's just the story. Of John Newton's life
3: his famous hymn Amazing Grace was based upon a sermon he preached on the first morning of a new year from 1 Chronicles chapter 17 verses 16 to 17 where King David reviews his the mercy of God to a man as weak and sinful as himself and John Newton in this hymn as you well know reviewed his own life
0: and when we come back we're gonna talk about how the song the verses came to America and became, well, the song we all know and love. The story of a song, Amazing Grace. This is Our American Stories. to Andrea Bocelli, his version of Amazing Grace. This is the story of a song. We just covered John Newton's life. He wrote the words. What about the music? Where did it come from, and how did it come to America? How did this American, essentially American song, get here from Great Britain? Well, that story's chronicled in Stephen Turner's Amazing Grace. Pick the book up. It's terrific. He also wrote the great book, A Man Called Cash. I don't think there's a finer music writer in America than Steve Turner. Well, he started off with a quote from George Pullen Jackson, who wrote the book Spiritual Folk Songs of Early America. This is a 1937 book, a musicologist. And he wrote, quote, The poem is by Newton, but the tune's source is unknown to the southern compilers. In other words, he had searched, he couldn't find it. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, because there are some breakthrough artists that take this song into the 20th century and propel it, into every room, every bedroom in America and the world. And one of the first is a gospel singer named Mahalia Jackson, who had this to say about the song and about the types of music that imbued the song with its melodies and its rhythms. She said, quote, I believe the blues and jazz music and even rock and roll stuff all got their beat and their melody from the sanctified church. We Baptists sang sweet and we had the long and short meter on beautiful songs like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. But when those holiness people tore into I'm so glad that Jesus lifted me up, they came up with a real jubilation. Let's take a listen to Mahalia Jackson's version.
4: Oh, me. Ah
0: And then it was the Folkies who really popularized the song, said Turner, quote, Pete Seeger seemed like an unlikely user of Amazing Grace. Not only was he not a Christian, but at a time when the most feared enemy of Christian America was godless Russia, he was a member of the American Communist Party. And then came the hit of all hits, Judy Collins, again another folky. And the watershed event was this a cappella single released by Judy in December of 1970, which climbed into the bestseller charts in both Britain and America. Although a pop hit, Turner wrote, Collins was not a pop singer. She was a folk singer who never disguised her roots. Her recording of Amazing Grace owed nothing to either rock or pop and in fact flouted the conventional wisdom of both. Said Judy Collins, quote, It was a song that I felt and had always known. It had come down to me from rural Tennessee, where my mom's family had produced missionaries and ministers, and from Idaho, where my dad had farmed. It was sung in the Methodist Church in Denver, where I was a part of the choir as a child. Here's Judy Collins' version
4: Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The
0: Of the 500 commercially released recordings held by the Library of Congress, 97% were made in the years after Judy Collins recorded that song. And by the way, she's not a believer, but she loved the song, and that's what's so beautiful about this country, the non-believers can celebrate believers' words, and sometimes vice versa. Now let's take a walk through some of the other great versions of this song, and there are so many, but let's take a listen to how Al Green sets things up
4: and just a little bit of this one verse aha oh Sing that with me,
0: and from the soulful Memphis sounds across the pond to Ireland and the Celtic women. Back to the more urban and African American traditions. Here's Ray Charles.
2: Embrace, how sweet the sound
5: that saved a wretch like me. I
4: once was lost,
5: but now.
4: Was blind, but
0: now was John Newton said this about himself, his own life, and one of the last things he ever wrote, actually. And he was writing this to his God, quote, "...perhaps thy grace may have recovered some from an equal degree of apostasy, infidelity, and profligacy, but few of them have been redeemed from such a state of misery and depression." as I was in upon the coast of Africa when thy unsought mercy wrought for my deliverance. And so we close with Alan Jackson. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song, John Newton's story, Amazing Grace's story.
5: Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That a wretch like me I once was lost But now am found Was blind but now I see was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fear